0: Well, today is an incredible day for a lot of different reasons, but the primary one is today we launched our Fisher's Campus location. So can we just celebrate with our Fisher's Campus? And uh, uh, we've already had an incredible day there. Uh, I was getting text messages and pictures kind of all morning. And uh, you can see this is a a live shot of the earlier hour. Uh, We had nearly uh, 600 people at that campus just at the first hour. So... I um, want to celebrate with you. If you are at the Fishers location right now, welcome to the family. If you live on the northeast side, you know somebody that is looking for a church, uh, let them know about that campus. Uh, campus pastor Chad Lunsford and his whole team are doing just an incredible job. And if you've been a part of our church for a while, then you know um, kind of our history here with this. We, we launched this campus originally back in 2020, about two minutes before COVID, And uh, we had to make the uh, um, really painstaking decision to push pause on that. For most of the reasons were outside of our control, we were meeting in a uh, portable location in a school. And uh, so we have just had a desire and a prayer to relaunch that campus, run into just a number of just different obstacles and issues, mostly around facilities and uh, just have an incredible uh, facility there. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do at this location in the years to come. Uh, First hour, we had had two baptisms. And so it's just already, it's kind of jumped out. It's really cool to see. And uh, if you are uh, joining us for the first time, whether at any of our locations or you're online, we are three weeks into a series of messages that we started at the beginning of the year called re And what we're doing is we are just uh, going on a journey to discover God's purpose. Sometimes the word is will. For our lives. And I think that most of us are interested in that. I know I am. I mean, I want to know not only who I am, but uh, what I'm made to do. In fact, I would ask you to maybe kind of finish this statement right here on the screen behind me. I was made to blank. And and do you know what it is that you've been made to do? Some of you, maybe right away, you knew exactly how to answer that statement. You're like, oh man, that's, that's a no brainer. I know what I was made to do. Maybe you're doing it, but others of you, maybe you're a little confused. Maybe you thought you knew, but now you're not quite so sure, or maybe you're kind of beginning kind of a journey of discovery around that, and I would just encourage you to take a picture of that, to write that down in your notes, and to just spend a little bit of time between now and the conclusion of this series next weekend, just asking God for clarity on what you were made to do. And I think that discovering God's purpose for our life is certainly about fulfillment and you know, in being able to like really lean in and enjoy life. But I think it's even more than that. I think that knowing God's purpose for your life helps you to endure through some of the difficulties of life. It's almost sort of like the shock absorbers of life. Like if you know why you're here and what you're called to do, then you can go through some challenges and some difficulties and some trials and some pain. And you can sort of weather that. But man, if you don't know, then that can be really, really disorienting and confusing. So on week one, we actually looked at something that a prophet named Habakkuk wrote. And he said, God he actually refers to him as sovereign, sovereign Lord. And that word sovereign just means that God is in control. And says, would you please give me the feet of a deer? Remember that? And we said that oftentimes what we have a tendency to do, I know that I've, I've certainly done this, is that when I bump up against some sort of challenge or trial in life, my, my temptation is to pray, God, take it away. Take away the challenge, take away the pain, take away the difficulty. And it's not that God won't do that. It's not that he doesn't have the power to do that. But sometimes there's just something that God wants to teach us, show us, uh, develop within us that can only happen through that path. It's kind of like you know resistance or, or challenge that's gonna produce some things in our lives that n- it can't happen in any other way. Mountaintop experiences are fantastic. Mountaintops have a great view problem is there's just not a lot of vegetation that grows at the mountaintop it's in the valley and that's painful but we've got to begin to shift our perspective to say if I'm in a valley if I'm in this difficult area of life instead of praying God please flatten the ground under my feet what if we said God please stable my feet for unstable ground and give me the ability give me the vision to see what it is that you want to teach me the As I just look back over my life, I just know that the the things that I've grown from the most, the the character that's been developed, the the things that have become more rock solid happened in the valleys and in the challenge and in the pain. And I think the world knows this, sees this more and more, whether they want to acknowledge God or not. Like in the words of the great theologian and former Navy SEAL Jocko, he says, more of you this hour got that than the other two hours. I've not given up on it though. All right, so... I love what Jocko says. He goes, hey, man, if you ever face like a challenge, if you ever have a hard conversation, if you're ever in physical pain, your response needs to be good. Good, this gives me an opportunity to grow. This gives me an opportunity to figure something out that I didn't know before. And I like that, I like that. It's this idea that God is, is doing more than just giving us a comfortable life. He's trying to develop a character within us that can handle whatever may come. And so we've just been on this journey to discover God's purpose for our lives and Last week I alluded to this. I just want to circle back to it because I think it's so important in this conversation. Is that, and we gotta be careful. In pursuing God's purpose for our lives, we gotta recognize that God is for you. It's just not about you. Like, man, if you're trying to discover God's purpose for your life and it's primarily like all about you, then chances are that's going to elude you and Many times we can end up making this life so much about us. It kind of reminds me, my youngest daughter, when she was in preschool, um, uh, she, Lindsay and her, they were running late to get to class one day for whatever reason. And, and so my, my wife very calmly says to her in the car, hey, we're going to be late to class. So when you walk in, be very um, respectful of the teacher and your classmates and don't make a lot of noise and interruption. Just go over to your little carpet pad and sit down and be quiet. And so my daughter acted like she understood that. She, she had no intention of doing that. And so she ends up like, my, as my wife tells it, like she walks into the classroom and she drops her bag and she announces, I'm here now. <laughs> and that's just like been a story that circulated around our family. And I've just thought, you know what? There've been so many times that I just kind of fall into that trap too. It's just like, I just may, maybe make life too much about me. And, and here, here's the thing, you make it too much about you and then chances are God's purpose for your life will continue to remain out of focus because it, it can't be about you. In fact, um, in Matthew chapter 20, there was a, a couple of Jesus' disciples, um, brothers by the name of James and John, and they were very clearly wanting to know what their purpose in life was. And so they had their mom go ask Jesus. I don't recommend that. Like if you send your mom to go talk to your boss about getting a promotion, that likely means that you're not ready for one. I don't know, just an observation. But she goes to Jesus and here's what she asks Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. She's like, can my boys have the seats of honor at your left and your right in the kingdom of God? And listen to Jesus' response. He, he goes, you don't know what you're asking. And then he says this, powerful words. Whoever wants to become great, it's not a bad thing to wanna to be great. And you were made in the image of God. You were made to make a unique contribution. You were made to make a difference. That, that's another way of saying, man, like it, I'm living out God's purpose for my life. Whoever wants to find that, whoever wants to be that, notice what he says. So counterintuitive. Must be your servant. And then he says this. Uh, Just as the son of man, that's another um, description of Jesus, son of man, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I was in Bible college, there was a building where I took most of my classes from and you would walk in and you'd go down one set of stairs and there was a landing and then down another set of stairs to the classrooms and above the, on the wall uh, at that first landing of stairs was a, uh, th- that, that verse framed. And every day when I walked into class, I would read those words, not to, I'm not here not to be served, but, but to serve. That was the pattern of Jesus, and that's what it means to follow him is to recognize that I'm here to use whatever gifts, abilities, and callings that God has placed upon my life for his glory and for the good of others. And then when you begin to grasp that, God brings his purpose for your life into focus. So on week one, we talked about the fact that every single one of us have been made in the image of our heavenly father. We're all different, different generations different ethnicities, different personality types, but we're all made in the image of God. And what happened when sin entered the world is that it fractured that image of God within us and we need to be reconciled with God and we need to be redeemed and restored. And so when you give your life to Jesus, what happens is, is that Jesus took on your sinfulness on a cross and then he imputed his righteousness to you when you recognize your sin and you invite him into your life, doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you got it all figured out. It means you have a standing now before God that is reconciled. And from that standing, that place of security, then you can begin to, to grow. And what spiritual growth is, is not head knowledge, even though it might involve that. What spiritual growth is, is a re-imaging where you're getting back to that image of your heavenly father before sin fractured it. That's what, that's what that is. And then last week we talked about work, our occupation, career, whether you work inside the home or out, whether you get paid for it or not. It's that the, the thing that you're producing, you're contributing to the world. And for so many of us, work can be such a source of great satisfaction, but it can also be such a source of stress and, and anguish and anxiety. And, and there were, I prayed with many people last week They were just dealing with work issues And whether that's a toxic work environment or maybe an unreasonable boss or maybe coworkers you're just not getting along with. And what we learned last week is that um, work is not the result of sin, sin has cursed the work. And so work came before sin, so likely work will exist uh, in the kingdom of God. So that was last week. This week where we're going is, uh, I wanna talk about the third thing that has been fractured by sin. And and this maybe is affected more than than anything else. And, And that's our relationships. A big part of discovering God's purpose for our lives involves the relationships that we develop. But just like everything else, it's been affected by the fall as well. Kind of reminds me of that married couple, they've been married for years and he uh, isn't feeling well, goes in for some tests, they get the results of the test. They go to the doctor's office and the doctor walks in very, very solemn and he says to her, hey, I'd like to speak to you first before I share the results. And so he takes her into another room and he says, listen, I just need you to know that your husband's got a a deadly disease at best. He's got about a year to live. Uh, You might be able to prolong that a few months uh, if you do a certain number of things. And she said, well, what is it? And he's like, well, you know, I need you to make him breakfast in bed every day. I need you to let him watch the game whenever he wants, go play golf with his buddies, give him a, you know, massage every night. And if you can do that, um, then, you know, he could live maybe a few months beyond uh, a year. And she's like, wow, okay, I understand and so she leaves, goes back into the room with her husband. He looks at her and he says, what did the doctor say? She looked at him and she said, said, you're going to die. That's what he said. That's... <laughs> and I know that's an old joke, a silly groaner, but nothing about relationships. Like, I mean, even like, as soon as I say like relationships have been kind of involved in the fall, maybe you have a, th- uh, maybe a current riff going on right now in your life and kind of makes us tense. We, we got to kind of laugh about it. Relationships are hard and they're complex and they're challenging. I think most of us know that. And so, so, so here's the thing is that, um, I would even go as far as to say this, that the quality of your life right now is dependent upon the quality of your relationships. Would you not agree? They're, they're connected. Like, so if you've got, like if you, if you were to say, hey, how's life going right now? And you're like, I'm oh, pretty good. And uh, how are your relationships? Well, probably it's a reflection. And when your relationships, like if you've got um, a disagreement going on right now, or maybe you're locking horns with somebody that you love and you you care about, or maybe there's uh, somebody just recently lost their temper or any number of things, you've got a marriage that's struggling, holding on uh, by uh, uh, by a wire, then chances are then you don't have very much peace yourself because the two are connected. In fact, um, when it comes to the relationships in our life, I want you to take a look at this diagram behind me, these concentric circles. So you get you kind of at the center. And then there's these spheres of, of relationships. So the first would just be family. So I just wanted to think about um, the names and the faces of people that would populate that circle. And then the next would just be friends. So these are just uh, people that you enjoy hanging out with. They're not, they're not uh, blood family, but, but you, you love them like family. And then the next would be frequent interactions. This could be neighbors, people that you see in the coffee shop, people that you work with, people that you uh, go to church with, frequent interactions. And the last um, flame. I, honestly, I was just looking for a fourth word that started with F. And, uh, but, and notice it's, it's flame, not flames. Alright, so this is just your romantic interests. It's wise to just have one of them. And uh, and so if not, maybe that's part of the problem. And so, so anyway, you've got you've got you got family, friends, frequent interactions a flame. All right, so so I want you just to think for a minute, like, okay, who populates those those circles? And here's the next question: how's it going? And if it's messy in one circle, it's likely spilling out into the next. And so uh, we were made for relationship. Relationships bring us so much joy and satisfaction, and yet for so many of us, relationships can be so painful. Uh, years ago, uh, we had um, a couple as guests here at our, our church. Their names were Stuart and Jill Briscoe. I don't know if any of you will recognize those, those names. Uh, uh, Stuart has is, is passed away a few years ago now, but when I was in college, uh, I um, had a subscription to... Um, it was a sermon club where they would mail me cassette tapes with sermons on them every month. I'm dating myself now, and uh, it was called Preaching Today. And I remember there were two sermons on side A, one sermon on side B, and Stewart was featured on many of those. He he sort of like he was one of the first preachers I listened to regularly to kind of teach me how to preach. And so we had the opportunity after his retirement, he led a church for many many years up in Minnesota. Uh, he had, we had an opportunity for them to spend a couple days with us here. And, man, we jumped at the chance and just soaking up so much wisdom from them. And I will never forget, up here on the second floor, we kind of reserved a little classroom. We had leadership team people, elders, spouses, all pile into the room with Stuart and Jill. And uh, he was just doing a Q&A with us. And I'll never forget, one of our elders raised their hands and he said, Stuart, in all your years of ministry, what was the greatest source of joy for you? He didn't even have to think about it. He goes, People. People were the greatest source of joy, the greatest reward of all those years of ministry. We said, okay, same question. What was your source of greatest pain and frustration in all those years of ministry? He goes, same answer, people. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. Greatest source of joy in your life right now. Maybe your marriage, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your family. Greatest source of pain and frustration. And just, oh, you just can you get so annoyed. It's the same, same answer. Well, if that's the case, what happened? And just like the previous two weeks, we need to go back to our origin story to understand what God intended and then what happened so that we might know how to move forward. And so Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 18, look at what it says, as God is creating, it says, then the Lord said, it is, circle these words here, not good, it's not good. Well, well for what, for, for man to be alone. And we could kind of camp out on that one statement for, for a while. And what does it mean by not good? Well, it means that we, were, we are relational beings designed for relationships regardless of how you're wired. You know, some of you may say, you know, well, yeah, that's true. Like I'm an extrovert, I love people. Well, the same is true for an introvert and ambiverts and anybody in between. That's just managing energy, uh, energy uh, positions. We, we are all made for relationship. And when you are cut off from relationship for an extended amount of time, actually uh, studies are showing that it actually affects your physical health. Recent studies show that social isolation significantly increases your risk of death along similar lines to that of smoking, obesity, and lack of exercise. It's also associated with roughly a 50% increase of dementia. We were made for relationships. C.S. Lewis said this years ago. He said, we are born helpless and as soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness when a baby cries. We need others physically, emotionally, intellectually. We need them even if we are to know anything, even ourselves. So, so we need other people in our lives for every reason. Um, we, we could look at uh, the greatest commandment that Jesus gave, greatest commandment. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He said, love God, love people. Well, you can't fulfill the greatest commandment without being in relationship with people. And you can actually see all through the scriptures that there's nobody like that does ministry alone by themselves. Now there is a most definite um, benefit to a, maybe a quiet time during the day or maybe a, uh, a season of self-reflection or getting alone. But, but most of the time, the way in which we grow is with other people. We, we could look at the life of Jesus and we see that Jesus modeled this. In his life, he had various circles of people around him. He had, the Bible says that he has the crowds, So think about the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Jesus had hundreds of people around him. But he wasn't necessarily in like personal relationship with with all of them. But he had that connection to the crowds. And then beyond that, he had the 72 close followers. And then then closer in, he had the 12 disciples. And out of the 12 disciples, he had three that he was especially close with. Peter, James, and John. I've... um, always been told that it's good for all of us to have a, a Peter and a Barnabas and a Timothy in our lives, meaning somebody who's a little bit older, a little bit further along the line who can pour into you. And then somebody like a Timothy who's maybe younger than you or not as experienced as you that you can pour yourself into because water that uh, doesn't have any source and it doesn't flow through becomes stagnant. And so, man, we we need somebody older than us that will pour into us, invest in us, mentor us, but it can't stay with us. We got to flow that through. You can only do that through relationship. Can I just say that one of the challenges of leading a church of this size is just helping you to see that what we're doing right now, I would call this the crowds. And there's a, place, there's a time and a place for this, for sure. I think sometimes we want to minimize this but I don't think we should minimize it. And I don't also think we should like say that this is the end all. What I mean by that is there, there is a unique thing that happens in a room of this size where you, and when I say room of this size, I mean, if you're in a room with more than 150 people, there's something different that happens in a room with more than 150 people than when you're just one-on-one with somebody or even with one in 20, meaning worship just is different. Uh, I would say that, teaching and preaching is different. Like I'm speaking right now at a volume, a pace and an octave that would be weird if you and I were in a coffee house. <laughs> Don't you think so? Like if we had met at Starbucks and I'm like, so, you know, you'd be like, calm down, right? But in this room, a little bit different, right? And so what this is, is this, this is where the spirit of God works in crowds, doesn't quite work the same way in, in smaller groups. There's something very powerful about that. I'm thankful for it. I mean, there are times whenever I get done preaching and I'm walking away and somebody comes up to me and te- I don't think I did very good, but somebody walks up to me in tears and they're like, man, uh, you said this and it imp- this is exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm like, well, what, what did I say? And you tell me. And I go, I didn't say that. Well, what is that? That's the spirit of God taking what I've prepared for better or for worse and tailor making it for you. And that happens in a room like this. However, with that said, if this is all you're getting, you're not growing. Because discipleship doesn't happen in a room like this. Now, you might get some nuggets and some wisdom and some experience with God, but here's where discipleship happens. Um, It happens in a living room. It happens around a fire pit. It happens around a table. Every Thursday, I meet with four men in the same coffee shop, and we study Scripture together, and we ask how it's going, and we confess sin, and we say hey could you hold me accountable to this this is the thing that I think that God is teaching me and this is what I need to do with it and guys that's where discipleship happens and roughly half our church at best is not in an one and I just want to encourage you don't don't if, and if you just settle for coming to the crowd once a month which is statistically what that that is you won't grow and eventually you'll lose interest and eventually you'll leave but when you get involved in a relationship through serving and through a group, that's, that's where growth begins to happen. You just cannot do it alone. You cannot do it alone. Your relationship with God is personal. It's never meant to be private. It's gotta be relational. You gotta invite some other people in. So this is what God intended. And, um, and we see that Adam is alone. And so God says, this isn't good for him to be alone. So he's going to send a solution. Look at the end of verse 18. I will make a helper who is just right for him. I don't know how that hits you, but the word helper is not meant to be derogatory. It's not like that she's an assistant or second chair or anything like that. The the word helper means this idea. It is uh, referred to as somebody who is suitable for the task of resolving the void. That's what it means. That's a mouthful. As there was a void in Adam's life, he was alone. And God said, I'm gonna make somebody who is suitable to complete what is left empty. So, so uh, that word for helper there is the original word. It's E-Z-E-R, uh, uh, Ezer or, or Ezer, however you wanna pronounce that. It's a powerful little word. Scholar uh, R. David Freeman points out that it is the combination of two words, to rescue, to save, to be strong. So it always denotes strength and power. In fact, by the way, it's the same word used of the Holy Spirit. So it's not meant to be derogatory at all. The Holy Spirit is our strength. The Holy Spirit is our sustainer, our intercessor. That was what God had in mind when he brought Eve to Adam. And so it says in verse 19, so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. That's amazing. Here's the job that God gave Adam. He goes, hey, "I want you to spend some time naming all the animals." I don't know. I bet you that took a minute. That was a long shift. That was a long day. All these animals, you know, stacked up coming through. Adam's naming them, you know. It's like I'm sure that he was like super creative and excited at the beginning. He's like hippopotamus, giraffe, cheetah. And then by the end of the day, like a little bug flying around, fly. I got nothing, you know. It's like, <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. That that is not original with me. That is is a joke as old as dirt, but it's still good, right? It's still good. And so here's the thing, though. As Adam is naming all these animals, you get the idea that it's starting to dawn on him how alone he really is. Because he's surrounded by all these living things, but he's like, man, there is none of them that I can have a meaningful conversation with. There's none of them that is like me. There's none of them that I can relate to. And he's feeling more and more and more Alone. In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. I, I love this imagery. Of all the ways that God could have presented Eve to Adam, he could have made her from the dust of the ground just like he did Adam, but he didn't. He could have made her from, you know, a part of Adam's body in the front, kind of suggesting her superiority over him, but he didn't do that. He could have brought him from a bone from behind Adam to maybe sort of imply her inferiority to him, but he didn't do that either. It was a, it was a rib on the side. This like, the ribs like support the body. It's close to the heart, it's next to Adam. And it shows here, pointing to Eve's equality and intended unity that they were supposed to have together. And I love Adam's response in verse 23. These two little words, at last, exclamation point, man, at last. And likely those two little words have left out of your heart multiple times throughout your life whenever you made a connection with somebody. And you meet somebody for the first time and all of a sudden that you've really, you oh know, really, we got things in common and it's easy to talk to this person and you make a friend and you're like, at last. I don't forget, I was in sixth grade I was so insecure, I was at my friend's house. We were in the driveway shooting baskets. He was a really good athlete. And I said to him, man, you're the best basketball player I know. And my friend looked at me and he goes, man, thank you. You're my best friend for this year. And I was like, I was like, at last. I was like, I got a friend. You likely felt this fellas when you got her number, when you went on on the first date, when there was kind of a love interest. You're like, at last, at last. This This sprung out of Adam. And he saw Eve and he goes on and he says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Quick little commercial, two weeks from today, next week we'll finish this series. Two weeks from today, we start a new series called Adventures in Dating and Marriage. It is not just a series for married couples, it's a series for everyone, single people. We're gonna talk about relationships, specifically this right here. And uh, I I think that I'm already like, um, I've outlined the the messages and been praying through it and and you don't wanna miss it. I think it's gonna be really, really important for us to to, to walk through that teaching together, but this is kind of the impetus of this. And in verse 25, it says, "Now the man and his wife were both naked, and, and to get this, it says that they felt no shame. I want you to just look at those verses and realize that this was the only moment in human history when relationships were perfect. No disagreements, no hurt feelings no abuse, um, no arguments, man, it was perfect. And this was what God intended. And they were united and they had no shame. So what happened? Well, just like our identity and just like work, relationships were impacted by the fall, perhaps more so. Because in Genesis chapter three, you can read that passage on your own. That's when sin entered into the world. And the very first thing that sin ruptured and affected was our relationship with God vertically. What was the very first question that God asked Adam after the fall? Where are you? He's been asking it ever since. It's not that God didn't know where he was physically. It was just God was like, okay, there's there's a separation in our connection now. And the second relationship horizontally is with others. Adam and Eve like immediately kind of threw each other under the bus. They weren't unified any longer and we've been sort of at each other ever since. So we, what we need to understand here is that this has always been Satan's goal is to cut off relationship with God and cut off relationship with one another. That, that's, his, that's his bullseye is that he wants to separate us. He wants your relationships to be diseased. He wants your relationships to be divided. He wants you to be stressed over that. He wants you to be angry over that. He wants you to be bitter over that. He wants you to to be offended over over things that he's trying to divide. And we just see that in the world all around us. And we've we've become separated. And I'm just kind of curious right now, uh, if you've got an interpersonal conflict going on in your life right now, whether it's major or minor, just slip up your hand. Just an interpersonal conflict. Don't be afraid to raise up your hand. There's gonna be a lot of them around the room. I've got my hand raised. There's interpersonal conflict. There's issues right now in each of those concentric circles. Maybe it's a, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a work-related thing. All of us have interpersonal conflict. If you don't have it, it's, it's likely coming. And relationships are hard and crazy complicated. Even the best relationships can get pulled out of balance by the pressures and the demands of life. Marriages get tested with little kids at home. Maybe your work is requiring you to travel a lot more. Maybe you and your spouse have begun to grow apart. Maybe friendships get tested because you just don't have the time to invest in them or to maintain them any more relationships with your teenagers or your young adult children can certainly get tested because maybe you've got opinions about how they're living their life and they don't wanna hear it. And, and you know, on top of all this is no relationship is easy. No relationship is easy. In fact, maybe, maybe the only time that it is easy is in the infancy of a relationship, like the, those first few weeks of a brand new friendship, or maybe the first couple of dates that you have with somebody while you're still pretending to be somebody you're really not. <laughs> Or, or, maybe, or maybe like when your kids are between the golden age of four and six. Oh, the golden age, because they still think you hung the moon, but not for long. Relationships are not easy. Eventually, every single relationship will get tested. Every relationship will struggle. Every relationship will develop hairline fractures that could threaten your connection and commitment. Every, here's, here's how Satan wants to get at us. If he wants to separate you from God, he'll separate you from others first. And this is why I think that church hurt's a real thing. But I think part of the reason why it's a real thing is because he knows that if he can't get you to question your faith, he'll go after your relationships. And it'll, it'll make you weak and he'll tear you down and he'll frustrate you and discourage you. And what you end up doing is you end up sort of isolating yourself from community. And if you can get isolated from community, he can pick you off. It's like a herd of sheep. If one wanders off from the rest of the pack, the wolves can take them out so easily. I think it's important for us to understand this playbook right here. You might take a picture with it on your, of your phone. Satan's goal is destruction. The Bible says he has come to kill, steal, destroy. That's what his his intent is. So I don't want to like over-spiritualize things. I certainly don't want to blame Satan for everything. But we do need to know that he's an enemy behind the scenes and he is trying to destroy. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your kids, your family, your friends. He wants to, certainly if you're married, he wants to destroy your marriage. Why? Because marriage is a covenant that reflects our covenant relationship with God. He hates that. So he wants, to dis- he wants to totally destroy that. Here's his uh, strategy, it's division, that's simple. It's kinda like uh, you can divide a country, it, that country will get weak. If you can divide two mar- uh, a husband and a wife, then their marriage gets weak. If you can divide friendships, that community grows weak. If you can divide people within a church, then the church grows weak, they get off mission, they start making it about other things. He is the master of division. And he's all about it. Here's his tactic, though. These are the tools in his toolbox, is offense. Here's what I mean. Is that if he can get you offended and then keep you offended, then he's won. Because when you stay offended, then inevitably what happens is it's a process uh, where your heart just eventually gets harder and harder and bitter and bitter and bitter can I say it this way? Um, if if you can develop a thick skin, you can keep a soft heart. But if you have thin skin, then you're going to have a hard heart. And don't misunderstand me. It's not like I'm saying that um, you'll never be offended. Part of being a human being is being, like, offended. I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, several months ago, I was out in the lobby and walking by, there was this group of teenage girls, which automatically just makes me nervous anyway. And I, I just I kind of broke out in a little bit of a cold sweat. And they, they kind of looked at me they were like, Are you the guy? Are you the pastor? You know, I'm like, Thanks for knowing. You know, so, so I kind of like, Yeah, you know, and, and they go, You look so different in person. I'm going to leave now. All right, so. I don't know, like, they ever have somebody just make a sideways comment about your clothes or your ears or, you know, I don't know, whatever. People, some people just have abrasive personalities. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. I mean, good luck getting through the day without being offended at least once. I probably offended you multiple times in the last 35 minutes. I don't know. Like, we can all be offended. That's, that's, that's just human. Staying offended is optional. Now, what I wanna challenge some of you with is that some of you got offended. Some of you got offended by something somebody said. Maybe something somebody didn't say. Maybe you got offended by somebody's decision. Maybe maybe that person never even knew. You never even gave them an opportunity to make amends or to talk about it or to bring healing. You just kind of kept it to yourself. And you're like, I don't wanna bother them. Or maybe it's not that big of a deal, but you stayed offended. And that, inf- that offense, um, it's kind of like the, fence posts in a fence, you just stuck it in the ground one after the other, the other, the other, and all of a sudden, now there's this dividing wall of hostility between you and the other person. Can I just challenge you today to not stay offended? Now that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that you're gonna necessarily be reconciled to the person who's offended you. That doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be best friends ever again. Doesn't mean they'll necessarily be in your life. It actually has nothing to do with the person, the other person, or their response to you. It has everything to do with your heart. That I refuse to have a hardened, bitter heart. And the only way that I'm gonna keep it soft and pliable is by letting go of the offense. Because when you hold on to an offense, you unknowingly give Satan a foothold. When you let go of offense, then you send him running. The only way, some of you'd be like, well, Aaron, that sounds amazing. Where do I find motivation to do that? Well, I would just simply say this, it's supernatural. That Jesus himself, I don't think that there's anybody that's walked the face of this earth that has more to be offended by than Jesus because we killed him. Um, the story that always comes to my mind is Peter. The night before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Peter, who was one of his inner three, by the way, one of his best friends for that year. And, and so they're, they're in the upper, upper room and Peter's like, Lord, I will never deny you. And Jesus is like, uh-huh. And then says later that night before the rooster crows, he denies him three times. Can you imagine how painful that would have been for Jesus to hear that? And after Jesus' resurrection, he's appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. And you imagine being in Peter's sandals for a minute? He hears that Jesus has been resurrected. He's like, oh man, this is, this relationship's beyond repair. What's always fascinating to me is that you know, Peter, it didn't necessarily seem that Peter went running to Jesus. Jesus had to go find Peter. And they have their, their, their first interaction post-resurrection is at a beach. I don't know if any of you remember the, the passage or not, but, but Peter's fishing, because he was a fisherman. It's early in the morning. He's gone back to fishing, by the way. And uh, Jesus is on the beach making a breakfast and he invites him to come have breakfast. I don't know, kind of seems like a little bit of an unusual thing to do to somebody who's offended you, hurt you, betrayed you. And so Peter comes and he has breakfast and they're walking along the beach, and Jesus has this conversation where he restores Peter. He asks him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What Jesus is doing is he's canceling out the denials and he's restoring him. And he's saying, it's gonna be okay. I forgive you. He's, he's not staying offended. It keeps the relationship alive. I, I love that. that. That's maybe one of my favorite passages. And I always thought, that the beach where Jesus restored Peter. I don't know, I just always thought that it was maybe like a few blocks away from where Jesus Airbnb was. I I don't know, I, I don't know why I thought that, but then I went to Israel last year and we actually went to the beach and I realized that Jesus was in Jerusalem and the beach where Peter was, was hundreds of miles away. That Jesus had to actually go out of his way to make his way up to Peter he went first to reconcile Peter. He let go of the offense in order to keep the relationship alive. That's the only way, that's the only way. Now, I know some of you may be like, well, this other person doesn't wanna be reconciled to me or they don't deserve to be reconciled or maybe, they don't, maybe they're not even around anymore. And it really has nothing to do with them. Are you still holding on to the offense? And I wanna just beckon you, encourage you by the power of the Holy Spirit to let go of that offense so you don't stay offended and imprisoned in your bitterness and give Satan a foothold. For some of you, that maybe the reason why God's purpose for your life, you don't know what it is, is because of that. For some of you, you feel stuck spiritually. You've bounced from church to church to church thinking that a new church will somehow sort of revive your spiritual life and none of it's working. Is it because you're offended and God cannot move a hardened heart and the first step is letting go of that offense and the only way to do that is to ask the spirit of God to soften it and do a miracle in your life just to realize that you're the one that needs to be set free and so we want to give you that opportunity today we want to develop just a prayer culture around here that is just every week you just know there's gonna be people with lanyards on in the middle of the room and down front. They're just willing to pray with you just every week. And it, the, the interaction can be very, very brief. It could just be like, man, I just, you, maybe here's how the conversation goes. You go up to somebody and you just say, man, I am holding on to a fence and I need to let it go. Would you please pray that I can? And they'll be happy to pray with you and over you. It requires a miracle. A miracle is what we need. And so let's ask for that right now. Father, we come to you today and, We're so grateful for the relationships that you've given us. We know that we were made for them. We know that we find fulfillment in them. And yet at the same time, these relationships can be so painful when they go bad, when a marriage falls apart, when a friend leaves our lives, when a child doesn't wanna talk to us anymore. When somebody we thought we could trust breaks that trust. God, right now, I'm just just trusting I'm speaking to a lot of hurting hearts. But I pray that your spirit would work a miracle in our lives, that even though we might be offended, we would not stay offended. That we would lean into the miracle of redemption and forgiveness, that it can only come through you. And we follow the example of Jesus, who has every, had every reason to hold a grudge, had every reason to be angry and offended, and yet he, he chose To forgive, he chose to to keep new life in that relationship. So, God, would you please do the same for us today? Would you please meet us right where we are? Would you please literally, I pray that literally there would be hardened hearts that would become hearts of flesh today. We ask this in Jesus' name.